Hello and welcome back to the podcast. So I recently came across an article entitled The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. And of course that title intrigued me. I love reading about the family, gender relations, child rearing. I just love all of that stuff. So naturally I was drawn to the title, but I also thought I kind of rolled my eyes a bit, you know, yet another article that is going to demean the family in some way. But this article actually wasn't that. And so I was pleasant, very pleasantly surprised when I listened to the article, in fact, because on the page, then they have the article recorded as well as um, the actual printed article. I was pleasantly surprised and I thought it was actually an excellent article that allowed me to think about things I really hadn't thought much about before and I think is so crucial because it puts the um, sort of what's happening to the nuclear family Um, the way that it is slowly breaking apart, it puts it in the context of families slowly coming apart for a very long time, not just with the nuclear family, but for far longer than that. So he starts out discussing a scene from a movie where the the writer of the or director of the movie he has a scene there i think the whole movie is about his life but in the beginning of the movie then there's a scene with aunts and uncles and just a sort of noisy scene of family together and all of the happenings that that is going on with that family at a I'm not sure if it's a family dinner or what it is exactly, but essentially his parents were immigrants and they were part of three brothers, I believe, who immigrated together. And they came to America together and they sort of did everything together in the beginning. And this is a scene that is becoming less and less familiar for a lot of us. Now, it's interesting because maybe a month or so ago, I actually found myself saying this twice recently, um, there's been so much rhetoric about toxic families and people saying, oh, you know what, if you're fam-, well, firstly, there's been this rhetoric about toxic families for a very long time, articles about, you know, how do you handle your racist uncle or how do you handle your meddling grandma or how do you handle this or that issues with your family when you go back home for Thanksgiving and different articles just telling people how to deal with these different dynamics in their families. But more recently what I've been seeing are an increasing number of people vocalizing that You don't have to go. You don't have to subject yourself to that toxicity, quote unquote, that may be a part of your family life. If you don't want to go, if you can't handle going, then don't go. And so I spoke, and this was sort of coming out of the self-care 
um, conversation that's happening online. And so when I was in Australia, I guess that was a couple of months ago now, and then somehow this this issue came up and I spoke about for us as Muslims, this is a very dangerous route to take because your family and people in general, they will offer you some trial in life and some hardship in life. But the solution is not to just completely say, well, forget about you. In our religion, we know it's the strongest obligation that we have is to our mothers. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he talks about what our mothers are owed, what he talks about, what he emphasizes is the pain our mothers went through to give birth to us. He doesn't say that your mother was necessarily kind or the sweetest or had no issues at all or was never mean to you but that she is owed this right purely because she gave birth to you and brought you brought you into this world and we have other familiar obligations as well the the mother child being the strongest but we also have other familiar obligations and you can't just forsake it because the other person isn't a great person we know that in the there's that um the story with Abu Bakr and I think it was his nephew but I could be wrong but there was an incident let's just say someone because I'm not completely sure what their relationship was but there was the incident where people were lying about Lady Aisha radiallahu anha and saying that she committed adultery and there was someone that Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was supporting that took part in that lie and he stopped supporting him financially and he was told you you couldn't do this. I'm not sure if it's, I believe it's a verse in the Quran, not that calls him by name, but he couldn't, like, this wasn't right to do, even though that person was so, um, did something so hurtful and so devastating to not only his family, but to the cause of Islam. But still, it was a person in need. And so, and I know there are more details. I'm certainly not trying to give any kind of fatwa right now. There are, of course, more details. And you may have a particular case that would allow you to deal with your family in a certain way. But in general, we try to put up with people. And I would certainly say that I'm the biggest advocate and not necessarily online, but just in general of self-care. I think self-care is crucial. And I do believe that if you need space, you need space. If your environment is toxic, do take time for yourself and try not to let that seep into you and try to keep yourself as free from that as possible. But that doesn't mean you can completely turn your back on people who make you uncomfortable, who make you upset. There's a balance, right? There is there is a balance. And so the tradition in our culture of everyone getting together for one or two holidays a year, for that to be eroded is, it's unfortunate. And I, I think we, this is where the balance comes in between the self-care 
and having familial and societal obligations. It can't all be one way. It can't all be about how does that person make me feel. Sometimes you have to put up with people as best as possible. And you know, those are the times when we become better people. And it's not easy. I'm not saying any of this in a sort of, um, I don't know how to put it, uh, from a high horse, so to speak. These, It's difficult for me. It's going to be difficult for you. It's going to be difficult for a lot of people. Of course, it's difficult to deal with people who we find difficult. But it also makes us better people. I had a teacher before. She said, you know, you really don't know if you're a good person until you're tested. You really don't know if you're a good person until you're in relationship with other people. It's a lot easier to be good and to be devout if you're on a mountain somewhere worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 24-7, you know, making dhikr and salah 24-7. That is far easier than actually leaving the mountaintop and having to deal with people every day. Uh, And that's why they say when it comes to just spiritual ascension that the highest level isn't someone that is just out of their mind and love and 24-7 just focus on dhikr and they don't deal with people just want to be to themselves and worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's a high level because that's also difficult. But the higher level is someone who can do that and deal with people so that when someone harms you and you would rather be angry, then you turn to that dhikr, that inner dhikr. Then you focus on, okay, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is watching me. How can I be my best self in this moment? So we have to be careful. And this is a part of what's eroding family even further is our inability or disinterest in doing for others when it makes us uncomfortable. And when I say doing for others in this case, I'm not even talking about service. We're not even at that point yet. We're just talking about, can you uphold the ties of blood relations without there necessarily being a benefit to you? Maybe you'd have more fun with your friends, uh, friends giving as as used to be the... um. Um, a term people would throw around um, once upon a time. Maybe you would have a lot more fun, but maybe there is benefit to solidifying those ties with your blood relations that maybe you don't like as much as your friends. But you know what's interesting? Because as I say that, I realize that as a Muslim, then we know that there is we know that there's benefit to keeping blood ties. We're re- rewarded by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we're actually, it's displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if we sever ties. So we have to be, we have to be extremely careful when it comes to these notions because then we're not talking about just earthly relationships, but also we're talking about relationships that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has tied for us. So one of the brilliant points that he makes in the article is that the erosion of family began 
a hundred years ago, if not more, because the original family wasn't the nuclear family, but the extended family. And he talks about also the economic family or the economic clan, corporate, corporate families, as one professor calls it where families work together, whether on a farm or in a family business, to earn a living together. And he says in the article, extended families have two strengths. The first is resilience. An extended family is one or more families in a web. Your spouse and children come first, but they are cousins, in-laws, grandparents, a complex web of relationships among even seven, 10, 20 people. The second great great strength of extended families is their socializing force. Multiple adults teach children right from wrong, how to behave towards others, how to be kind. So this is something that we lost before the excessive divorce rates, right? Before the lowering rates of people even getting married, we lost this long ago, the extended family. So again, he breaks it down as having that support that the, in the extended family, even if there is a divorce, then you have the support of other adults that can help with that child. And the second being a socializing force. Now, these these two things are so crucial because I think that what we don't, you know, one of the, the pro, sort of the, the benefits, or not benefits, but one thing I can say, at least in the Black community, though there are very low marriage rates and very high divorce rates, I do think that there are more extended families. So the single mother... It depends, but often the single mother does have her own mom, a grandmother, an aunt, an uncle, someone within her family who is also helping her. Now, unfortunately, in a lot of these scenarios, they don't necessarily have male role models because there are sometimes generations of women who have been single mothers. But sometimes they do. Sometimes there will still be an uncle somewhere. Um, or grandfather somewhere. But that is really valuable. The more that you have that to kind of insulate the child, the more protection they have. You know, if you're poor, if your family runs on hard times and you become poor, but you have a grandmother whose house you can go to to eat, you have an uncle whose house you could stop by, you even maybe have a close friend who you can stop by. Um, that helps a lot. I remember just a smaller example. Actually, no, I, I almost forgot about this, but a, the smaller example I was going to use first is just a lot of times myself, my younger sister, we would get locked out of our house when we were younger our apartment because we'd forget our keys. Like this was a constant thing, but we had a close neighbor, actually two close neighbors that we would just go by the house. You know, we'd forget our key and it was like, okay, we'll just go by so-and-so's house. And that was, you know, mashallah, we're, we're eternally grateful to them. May Allah bless them for that. That was really valuable to have. Other, 
Otherwise, what would we have had to do? Now, granted, maybe we would have become more responsible, right? But otherwise, we would have had to wait for hours, which that did happen a couple of times if someone wasn't, if the two friendly neighbors that we had weren't home, we might end up waiting. We might have had to go to our parents' office where they worked, but we would not be as protected, right? Um, if they, if those neighbors did not exist at all. Um, but another incident even larger than that, or even more crucial than that, I should say, is when we were young, then our our apartment, uh, we had a fire. And so that we couldn't live there for a little while. And for a few months, we all moved in. Now, my family, we're a pretty big family, and my parents and six um, daughters, we moved in with my dad's aunt. And in their household, it was already uh, my great aunt, my two aunts, her daughters, their two children. So they already had, you know, people in their house, right? It wasn't as if they lived in a mansion, but alhamdulillah, their doors were open to us and we were able to go lived there for a few months while the apartment got cleaned up and repainted and all of that. And then, you know, moved back when we were able to. What if we didn't have that? What if there was no close family? What would we do? I have no idea. You know, I, I really don't know. So that extended family, it is such a wonderful protection. It really, really is. And if you don't have that at all, you're in trouble. You're in big trouble. And unfortunately, I think that it hasn't hit us quite yet. I saw in someone's blog post, it was from a couple of years ago, that in the Black community, a lot of people talk about the village, which, as I said, is crucial. And it's great that we that a lot of Black people still have that. But at what percentage of unwed or um, children out of wedlock, at what rate or after how many generations... Are we just going to be wearing on the village too much? Are there going to be not enough people in the village to care for these children? Because at this point, we still are living in a society where the previous generation and certainly two generations ago, people did get married. So there are there's still the existence of strong families from that generation. But at the point where we are now two generations later when their grandparents didn't get married or they don't really have grandparents because they only know their grandmother. What does that look like? How strong can such a community be? So I think that it's it's just a very crucial point that the even divorce is more devastating if you don't have an extended family. And if you do have one, then you can actually be pretty protected. So I thought that was an excellent point because part of the devastation of divorce is because there's not necessarily an extended family. So people get divorced and fall into poverty. People get divorced and have to live in shelters. People get divorced and can't feed their children because they don't have... And maybe not in a literal sense that they don't have extended family because everyone literally has an extended family, right? But that they don't necessarily have an extended family they can depend on. So I thought that was just a really crucial point that he made. 
Secondly, he talked about the nuclear family. So as we already stated, one of the second great strengths of the extended family was as a socializing force. And when he spoke about the nuclear family, he made the great point that even once nuclear families became the um, mainstream form of family, when people were living in neighborhoods and suburbs, it still had this socializing force of people feeling like their neighbor can correct their kids. And I'm sure a lot of us in my age group, 20s, 30s, you can relate to or you have heard your parents talk about, oh, when we were growing up, you know, the neighbor could, you know, if you lived in a community that believes in beating, then the neighbor could beat you the or reprimand you, you know, you could get in trouble from the neighbor. And then they'll, t- <laughs> I remember my, my parents would talk about sometimes, you know, if they got in trouble in school, if the neighbor heard about it, the neighbor could reprimand you. And then they tell your parent and your parent will reprimand you too. So you could get it, quote unquote, from a lot of different adults in your life. And while that may seem cruel on one end, on another end, that could be a major positive because, and especially now, I think (laughs) one of the frustrating things that I find, and it's funny because I realize that I have sort of an old school mentality in this way, is that people take parenting very personally. So especially as a non-parent, but I think even other parents, people don't want you to say anything to their kids and they don't want you to say anything about their parenting. So parenting becomes this very, this very, um, what is the word? Not specialized, but uh, maybe particular or unique thing that every parent does parenting their own way. So you can't tell parent A that, hey, what your kid is doing is not right because maybe in their parenting philosophy, it is right. And I think that that causes a lot of issues because at a macro level, you can't have a cohesive society if we don't have a have general principles about how to raise children. Because raising children is producing the next generation of human beings in the society, the next generation of citizens. And if we don't have a shared vision of what we want that to look like, I think we're asking for trouble. And so, but the funny thing is that you can't just bring these things back. That's just the reality. There's a lot, I don't know, people would have to agree that, for instance, when I lived in, um, when I lived in Jordan in the community that I lived in, then, you know, we have a leader, we have a way of doing things. This is how you raise your children. And there are going to be, everyone's going to have their specifics, of course. But there's here are these general principles. When you're here, your children can't be noisy. If they're too noisy, you're going to have to leave. Whereas for some people, I'm sure we've all been in situations where, you know, there's a woman with her child, you know, screaming at the top of his head in a public space and we want to say something maybe we wish they would leave but you can't because that's uncomfortable maybe she believes in the crying it out method or maybe she doesn't believe in reprimanding her child and you know maybe like and that's not to say there aren't unique situations where hey there's nothing you could do but I mean in a general sense we 
where you don't even know how to approach it because there's no general principles about how to raise your child. How should an American citizen raise their child? You'll get a ton of different answers. And I just think that's dangerous for social cohesion. Like I'm, you know, a black woman, Caribbean, you know, a bunch of these minority check boxes. So I understand that we want to have inclusions of different cultures in our cultures, but I, in our, in our singular culture, but I still deeply believe in social cohesion. There has to be principles that we agree on. What kind of society are we? We're, we're just falling apart, you know? And, the, and I think that when a society is falling apart, when it doesn't have shared principles, shared beliefs, shared direction, that's when you can have some kind of demagogue who can come around and say anything and will be followed and believed because we don't have those strong principles. So whoever has the strongest, loudest voice, then a lot of people will follow them because they have the veneer of strength and of being principled, even if they're not. So in the in even in the nuclear family of the past, there was at least this socializing force and sort of the pseudo extended family in the suburban neighborhoods that really doesn't exist anymore. Um, and he made some points about sort of porch life and, and people spending time together on their porches. And any of us who have watched old movies, old shows, or even old depictions, um, or read old stories, then, you know, you hear about people borrowing a cup of sugar or borrowing a cup of milk from their neighbors or just hanging out during the day, if it's women especially who are housewives, going to the other person's house, having a cup of coffee, having lunch together, having play dates, etc. And um, that functioning as a kind of extended family. I remember a scene in Mad Men, and I always... I always hate to over-exaggerate the um, realism of a television show because you never know, but I think this is confirmed by the research. It's confirmed by what this guy is saying in this article. But anyway, there was just a moment in the show where some kid was running around and an adult you know, bent down and like slapped him in the face. You know, and of course I think that's cool, you know, to... to slap anyone in the face that that's against our religion. But the idea was being, um, the, the essential idea is that adults can reprimand children, right? That an adult can tell a child that's wrong, stop it. But you can only do that if you have shared principles. And because we don't really have that anymore, in part because the nuclear family, now we've even lost, um, the socializing force of the neighborhood, because as he talks about, then the reason that the nuclear family worked was largely because women stayed at home. But once women started working, there was no more, there really is no more social life, like not, not to the same extent. And another article that, that maybe I'll do in another podcast, this excellent article talking about the way that women no longer, or sort of what was lost when women started working, and this isn't by a conservative thinker, though I don't mind conservative thinkers, but it this one was not, um, did not happen to be written by a conservative thinker. But they were just, you know, clearly stating the point that 
one of the things that we lost when women started working was their participation in civic duty. A lot of the social programs, the local social programs, were run, founded, and run by women. And they just don't exist anymore. People don't participate and they largely don't exist on a local level. And so once men and women started going to work in droves, most women work now, I I think it's 70%, but I'm not sure if women work. There isn't really any more social life and there's certainly no more socializing force to the same extent that there was. And you know, one interesting thing that I think about sometimes is, you know, people talk about at times school essentially being a babysitter. And I kind of agree with that assessment, especially in a lot of the ways that school is set up and how much repetition there is, etc. But an interesting thing is that the typical school day is from, I think, eight to three. And the typical work day is nine to five. So it's kind of interesting that there's there are these two hours built in that kids kind of have to figure out or parents have to figure out what to do with their kids. And that time has largely, as we know, been taken by technology. Previously television, now it's television, social media, the computer in general. And so the internet and television becomes the socializing force. What is right and wrong? What is good and bad? How you're supposed to be, how people are supposed to be is largely coming from the internet and television. And you know, the interesting thing about the internet and television is television that I don't think we explore often enough or talk about often enough is that television is owned by a handful of corporations. And so they are going to push forth a certain agenda. And you know, television in and of itself is going to push forth what makes money, which is why it gets more violent and more sexualized all the time because those are the sorts of things that play well on television. So we have to ask ourselves, I don't want to get too deep into that because I'm sure I'll do another episode about television. I'm I'm reading this book about television right now, but we just have to ask ourselves, really take a look at that, to go from having this extended family as the socializing force, extended blood relatives as socializing as a socializing force, to the nuclear family plus the neighborhood as a socializing force, to now the nuclear or well yeah, let's say now in part, the nuclear family plus television and social media and the internet as the socializing force. And now even a nuclear family is breaking down. So it's single parents and television, media, and all of that, Um, as well as school, of course. We can't leave that out. So I, I think it's very interesting because in our society, we see that essentially what has happened is increasing isolation. That, that's how we can all be summarized. Increasing isolation, which benefits the market, benefits capitalism, If we each have to buy a house and we each have to buy a television and we each have to buy a laptop and we each have to buy a phone, et cetera, et cetera, they make more money. And that's not, not that I care about conspiracy theory or not, you know, that label is like, so what, you know, sometimes you should sort of, um, 
attach the dots, right? But that is just to to make it a very obvious point, right? People have things they want to sell and they are going to figure out how to sell it. You know, that's why they make apps that are addicting. And they know that's what they're doing because they want you to stay on the app as long as possible, which is why we as human beings have to understand the technology as best we can and combat that as best we can. It's, you know, it's kind of like a a war in a sense. They want you to stay on Twitter 24-7. I don't know what I was reading, but it had made the point about... um, all of these social media companies, what they want is for you to, they want to create the endless scroll so that you just scroll. There is no, there's no end to Twitter. In fact, it was funny a few days ago after I had read that and I happened to be on Twitter scrolling and somehow it did come to an end. Maybe my internet messed up or something or the app messed up. I just thought that was kind of funny. But essentially there's no end to Twitter. There's no end to Instagram. There's no end to Facebook. You can scroll and scroll and scroll. So you have to put the limitations on yourself, right? And so in our society where isolation is what's best for the capitalists, for the corporatists. Well, how do we combat that? And so it's kind of interesting because towards the end of the article, he essentially comes to the conclusion that we should make an effort. Or I can't say this is his conclusion, but this is sort of what he ends with. The idea of creating family and creating kinship that there are these sort of living experiments where people live with each other, young, old, a couple may live with an older man and two teenagers and an elderly man, and they all live in the same um, space and help to take care, care of one another and create family. And he mentioned living in one himself. And, you know, on the face of it, that sort of idea, I don't like. On the face, of, before reading this article, because I, I think he presented his the article really well. But without that, because I've heard this idea before of creating families and creating kinship. And even a few days ago on Twitter, there was someone who, who wrote about, you know, we should... SubhanAllah. Oh, she was saying we should have (laughs) people just start having babies with their friends and then they raise the child together. So not having a necessarily romantic relationship, but having a baby with someone who is your friend and then proceeding to raise that child together. And my criticism of that argument is that if you cannot successfully um, what's the word, form a family, right? You can't successfully find a man or find a woman, create a committed relationship, reproduce, stay together and raise those children. If you can't do that, what makes you think, if two people who are romantically involved can't do that, then what would really suggest that two friends could? What would suggest that two friends would be more committed to each other than two romantic partners. And you know, it's an experiment. We really don't know. As a Muslim on the outside, we kind of have this covered in a sense, you know, you intimacy in marriage, that's 
it, right? I mean, you can marry your friend if you want to, but, you know, your, your opposite sex friend, but you're going to have intimacy in marriage, have children in marriage, and do your best to stay together and raise those children. But I just think even on the experimental level, obviously there's no proof that it would work because this is not really something people were doing before. Uh, but what would make someone think that would work? Which is, I don't know, That that's the interesting thing to me. And I'm not really sure what's the thinking that goes into that. On the other hand, the idea of creating kinship, that's an interesting idea to me as well. I suppose the bond is that these are people that want to be in each other's life, but then it sort of goes into the the same territory of the marriage that's built solely on love, which are which is the modern marriage. Well, then if you don't love the person anymore, then you get a divorce. So if you have a kinship that's based solely on I like you, you like me, we all like each other. Well, as soon as people don't like each other, then you just move on. So I don't know. You know what? I guess time will tell. If people actually take this route, time will tell. I still think that as beautiful as the extended family is and was, at the root of it is still a nuclear family. At the root of it is still two people who came together to create a new life. And I think that something is wrong if the two people who came together to create new life cannot stick around for the for the life that they created. I I still believe the best case scenario is that. And I think it's devastating to a human being and much larger, you know, on a macro level to a society if the people who create children together can't stay together. I think that's devastating to the psyche of a human being, and I think it's devastating to a society. So the last point I'll make is that as Muslims, while we're not immune, while we're while we are immune to some of these issues, we're not immune to all of them, right? Some of these issues are still going to apply to us. Alhamdulillah, maybe I'm relatively fortunate that I sort of had a mix in a sense. There's some extended family that were, that was, that were, that did play a major role in my life. And there's some that didn't. I didn't, I wouldn't say I grew up with my cousins and my uncles, but I saw them often enough, you know? So I think we had a relatively, I'll say a, a familiarity. We have a familiarity and of course it could be stronger. I think there were times when it was stronger, where we had more family reunions and that sort of thing. But alhamdulillah, some of my family absolutely does regularly get together. And I think that is wonderful. The question remains, even when I think about it, honestly, and it's so interesting to think about it on a macro level, because on a micro level, as an individual person, as someone who doesn't really like to go out, as someone who doesn't really like big gatherings, it's easy for me to say, I, I don't really want to go. I'm not going to go to that thing. I'm not going to go to this gathering, whatever, because it's just not my thing. But when I think about it on a macro level or the long-term effects of if we all did that, then I do, I do see how that kind of attitude 
you know, it's, it's not the most positive one in a larger scale. I think you can, of course, have those moments where you just don't want to go to whatever different events, but it is valuable to try to some degree to maintain those ties. And I know this, this past Thanksgiving, we did go to my aunt's house and I hadn't seen this aunt in a while, maybe maybe a couple of years, maybe a couple of years. And so it was wonderful to see her. I saw a cousin that, the same cousin that we lived with for a couple of months when I was younger and we had the, the fire in our family apartment. It was really nice to see them. And there is a kind of familiarity and kinship and bondship and bond that we're never going to let go of because we're blood relatives. But if we don't see each other anymore, like I, I can't even think about my generation. Are we going to try to make the effort to see each other? I don't know. I don't know. You know, we really see each other when the generation above us has gatherings, right? Which, which you know, is often enough. But my generation, are we going to make an effort? The generation under me, are they going to make an effort? I don't know. And what is lost when you don't, when you can't, when you just don't have those ties that you can rely on? It's something for all of us to really think about. I mean, there's, when I really, just in saying this, I it kind of brings up so many instances where, alhamdulillah, for family. I remember when I was in Jordan and I needed to leave every three months, I think it was, because that's essentially how, at least one way, how you renew your visa. And I had family close by in a neighboring country, so I went to visit them. And then I had um, other family in another country, so I went to visit them the next time, right? What if I didn't have those that um, connection? What if there wasn't that level of familiarity, of dependence, where I didn't feel, feel um, comfortable to ask, you know? So sometimes we don't realize it when we have it, but it's so valuable and we don't want to lose it. And we want to know that we can depend upon it. And we also want to be the ones who can be depended upon too. And so that would be my other critique of the creation of, oh, let's just create kins and clans, the family that you choose. You know, our families are falling apart. Well, let's just create new ones. I think that there's something really beautiful about having the familial obligation. Not that I'm helping you because I like you, but I'm helping you because we are connected by God. God chose to connect us as blood relatives. Imagine if everyone had that, that I'm going to help you just because we're related. That's powerful. And I do believe that's more powerful than I'm going to help you because I like you. So I really, I thoroughly enjoy the article. It's long, but they do have um, an audio version. So I highly suggest listening to it. It's about 30 minutes. Really good read, really excellent. Although one other thing I wanted to say is for us as Muslims, I actually started saying, yeah, that we're not completely immune from this at all. You know, whether it is the immigrant family, my family, uh, my parents' generation, they are immigrants. 
whether it is because you're immigrants and the later you disperse or whether it's the younger generation who go and travel here and there for work or adventure or school or whatever it is, you know, we're not immune from this at all. And so I think it's a valuable reminder that kinship bonds are important. They're important. And that doesn't mean that you're going to like everyone in your family, that you're going to have a great relationship with everyone, but there's an obligation there. And the extra, um, what can I say, the extra motivation for us as Muslims should be that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to reward us for upholding the bonds of the womb. So that that should be enough reason for us to go to those, you know, the Thanksgiving dinner or the family reunion and put on a happy face and um, hopefully you do like your family. But if you don't, you know, grin and bear it and you don't have to do it very often, but we shouldn't feel like it's just absolute torment or we shouldn't feel so self-righteous that, I'm not going to go because my family's this or that or we don't get along. No, uphold family ties. It's so valuable. People may need you. You may need them. We have to uphold it. The last, last thing I'll say is that as I'm talking now, it kind of reminds me that my mom has always said stuff like this. <laughs> you know, you ever have those moments where you're saying something you're like, oh, my mom would say that. So alhamdulillah, our moms are, are always right or, or they're correct very often. Thank you guys for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to subscribe. We are all over the place, Spotify, Anchor, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening and I hope to talk to you soon. Take care.